0: Afternoons with me, I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that we've had such a fantastic week here, and now I'm looking at a beautiful day outside, and the weekend is in front of us, and I am so grateful. My heart is full. I love when I feel this way. Spring is in the air, and I don't know if it's where you are, but doesn't it just kind of improve your mood? Don't you sort of secretly feel like things are just going to get better? And I think the coronavirus is diminishing. I think there's less and less and there's more states that are opening. And I think it's going to be a great uh, spring and summer. And I really pray that this will uh, continue to diminish and we can get schools open for the kids and get businesses back open and get our economy buzzing again and get churches open and just feel like we are back in the kind of routine and rhythm that we once had and I pray that there is continued to have revival I pray that God will grant us many opportunities because we have all gone through an incredible experience together in the last year wondering uh, exactly what we're going to learn from this and I think that in Romans 8:28 uh Paul says that God works all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So I think our attitudes and spirits should be one of as much optimism as possible, because that way we know that God will work all things out according uh, to his purpose. And that's an encouraging thing. We got a great show. Dr. Alex McFarlane will be joining me in just a minute. And then Dr. Ann Bradley, who's my favorite economist, maybe she's the only economist I know, But she is going to come on the program as well. I've got some questions about what's going on with the stimulus package, and will this create inflation in our country? I'm going to ask her that. That's my top question. And then in the second hour, Dr. Christian Widener will be joining me. He's written a book on the uh, rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, and he thinks that location is in plain sight. So that's going to be an awesome chance to find out about his new book on that. And then also Tom Stewart's going to be joining me, and he is going to... Uh, talk about his career, this little section I called Faith at Work. I think you're going to enjoy that. So I think we've got Dr. Alex McFarland. I guess we don't. So we're going to hopefully get him back on. Um, So that is what the program is for today. If you are uh, signed up for the Kindness Initiative, I am so excited because we're going to have a wonderful time to celebrate what's happening in the lives of so many people who are doing acts of kindness and if you did sign up for that, I know the sign-up period is over, but uh, the ac- the action is not over. The, the going out and doing kind things, you can start today, uh, and it's going to be a wonderful time. We're going to have some great stories, uh, and we're going to do that on April 1st. Uh, so that's going to be a fun time, and I think Susie and Carmen are going to join me, and it's going to be a wonderful hour of hearing incredible stories of kindness. So... That is what is ahead. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, hopefully we'll have Dr. Alex McFarland.
1: Providing timely tools to help you grow and encourage your faith. That's the ministry of Faith Radio.
0: It tends to reground me. You know, if my day gets unsettled or I get out of sorts, then I get regrounded with that. It focuses me back on what's important and what's not important.
1: just strengthens your faith. Anytime you can listen to God teaching principles and listen to things like that, it just helps your faith. Connecting faith to life. Together on Faith Radio. Here's another Faith Radio fan talking about their favorite show.
2: I love Faith Radio because it draws me closer to God and it shows what God's attributes and characteristics are. I learn so much from the examples of the people that are speaking on Faith Radio.
1: Faith Radio is a constant companion to encourage your faith, keeping you on the right path. With relevant Bible preaching and family-focused teaching, there's a lot to love about Faith Radio. Here's one listener's reason for listening.
2: When we moved to a New City, the first thing I looked for as a Christian radio station. I tuned in and I became a regular listener was particularly helpful for me because I was actually here alone for 15 months. So it was very comforting to have Christian radio on all the time.
1: Faith radio was always available. Daily encouragement for your faith.
3: There's so many times where I have been in a trial and I come out and turn that radio on and there's something that the Lord just wants to say to me right there in that moment, whether it's, Chuck Swindoll or Colin Smith or Bill
1: Arnold or whoever happens to be on at the time, somebody he's interviewing or Susie Larson or whatever. It's my station of stations. The right message at the right time. Another way God uses faith radio in the lives of our listeners.
0: Oh, people have busy schedules. Dr. Alice McFarlane is apparently getting on an airplane right now, so he's not going to join us today. But I am reminded of how much I learned from Dr. Uh, Bruce Samat, who was talking about uh, his uh, discussion on Alzheimer's. And I think it's something that would be worth revisiting because the information was so good and he gave us some wonderful tips. So let's jump to that right now. It's the Afternoon Show
3: with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it
1: started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill
0: Arno. Welcome back to the show. Do you sometimes have difficulty in remembering recent events or maybe problems with language or sometimes you feel a little disoriented or mood swings? Those could be symptoms of Alzheimer's, which is a neurodegenerative disease that usually starts pretty slow and can obviously get uh, worse over time. And it is the cause of about 60 to 70 percent of cases of dementia. Uh, back by popular demand is Dr. Bruce Samat. He is a biology professor here at the University of Northwestern, and he recently gave a wonderful presentation on Alzheimer's, and I thought it would be awfully nice to have him in and learn what we can learn in the time we have uh, today. Bruce, welcome back.
3: Well, thank you, Bill. It's good to be back.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. been a while since it's, I've seen you, and it's really nice to have you back in the studio and got a different tie on today, so really, uh, really a pleasure. <laughs> pleasure. So let's talk about this uh, very scary disease called Alzheimer's.
3: Yeah, well, I really started getting interested in it. Um When my father-in-law was diagnosed, or suspectedly diagnosed uh, with it, uh, some time ago, actually, uh, more than 20 years ago, and uh, I'm a biochemist, so I like to know what's going on in the brain and what cells are doing, and I'm a physiologist, so I like to know how the organ systems work, like the brain, so it's a nice combination of how organs work, and then right down to the biochemistry of what makes them work well, and then what makes them not work well. So when he was going through this, and we watched this degeneration over quite a few months, uh, and it was very sad, of course, um, uh, and difficult to watch. But I started getting into it to find out what's going on. So here's what I've been looking at. Uh, Something in which we don't understand yet is triggering the brain cells to do odd things. And one of the odd things is to make a protein called a tau, T-A-O, tau protein that gets in the way of nerves talking to each other. Mm. So it literally they're blocking um, the transmission of electricity. So you don't think so well. So you might not remember so well. Or you might get into moody swings. It depends on where this is happening in the brain. Mm-hmm. And it could be in a behavioral area. And people can get aggressive or or short, just short-tempered. You know, or memory, like I said. So it depends on where this is happening first. Now, eventually, it starts happening more and more in more parts of the brain until the brain is shutting down. So one of the issues is this production of this, this protein And this long protein gets clipped. And there's the problem. It gets clipped into shorter pieces. And these shorter pieces are the ones that clog up the electricity from nerve to nerve. That's one thing. Then there's another thing where the actual nerves get tangled. Now, that's something I can't even quite imagine how this could happen. But nerves will twist around each other. Well, that inhibits their uh, firing also. So with, with this neural tangles... And these tau proteins getting in the way, you don't think so well. So little by little, it starts to degenerate the brain. And in fact, parts of the brain die off. And upon autopsy, that's where they really can diagnose this. Um, And you can actually look at a brain. I have have autopsy pictures of this in in my presentation, showing how the brain is actually looking like it's sculpted out on the inside. Um, Not a good thing. So... And, and brain scans before a person dies start to show less activity, less activity. Until pretty soon you're going more infantilism. You are just not even able to handle your own bodily functions because mm-hmm. the brain isn't handling hardly anything. That's not good. Um, now, some of the early um, information that came out was, was trying to point the finger on something. What's causing this? So if we can find out what causes it, well, maybe we could avoid that. Is it some kind of food? Is it some kind of heavy metal? Is it something in our lifestyle? What, you know What's different? Because the question was being asked and it, and it was not being answered is are there greater and greater number of cases nowadays than before? Let's say 1900, 1950, mm-hmm. now, you know, all the way through. Well, no one knew what it was. So people were just dying and de- degenerating and nobody had a clue what was going on. So and they just called it dementia. You know, Now we're finding out, Dementia is one thing, Alzheimer's something else. So, in any event, the um, so there were there were fingers were being pointed at various things. Um, one was aluminum because saying, "Well, look at we we're starting to understand this now, and we're all using aluminum pans." You know, trying to make an equation there. Well, they started doing studies with that and found out that aluminum is not the case. And people who use aluminum pans versus people who use steel pans. Um, don't have any real difference, appreciable difference of aluminum. Um, so it doesn't accumulate, is what they were looking for. Does it accumulate? And 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 as an element, uh, aluminum doesn't accumulate easily. So that was dispensed with. That sort of has gone away. So we still don't know exactly what causes it. But now more and more information is coming out to be to have an earlier diagnosis, because as it was. With again 20, 25 years ago my father-in-law, no one could diagnose it for sure until he died then the autopsy, looking at the brain said, oh, this is Alzheimer's we're looking at the tangles, we're looking at the, the proteins and we see that so now they're looking at what is it that might be in the blood that might be shed from cells in the brain into the blood such that we could pick up on it on a blood test and at least catch it early now we still don't know how to treat it but if we knew it was something was happening with somebody early on, we could start throwing a lot of things at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, in the biochemistry, start throwing pharmaceuticals into this, start trying to make a change and see if, if it would, if those markers in the blood would, would reduce. See, that's how you could, you could start combating this. You have to diagnose it and then you can start working on things. And this is something, uh, you know, it just has to happen. Uh, to get any to get anywhere with it. So more recently they have found some markers in the blood that tend they think are indicating that maybe this person is a higher risk for alzheimers as as they age. Yeah. And of course it hits with age. That's the whole point. It doesn't happen with young people. It happens as your brain ages. So I've drawn this kind of curve where the the normal aging of the brain that gives you a little bit lesser function, a little bit less, a little bit less is on a very slow slope, just a few degrees slope. And that happens from age, whatever, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. It's a slow slope that maybe by the time you're 90, you might have lost 10% of memory and capabilities and et cetera, but you, know, you, you can work just fine at 90% when you're 90. Yeah. Right. Now, other things like dementia, it's a steeper slope. And when you come to Alzheimer's with those neural tangles and those proteins in the way, it goes down on a very sharp curve, and in just months, within a year, maybe two, you are going down what would otherwise be twenty, thirty, forty years. Wow! Yeah. so it's it's that much faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we can find these markers and they can and we can really verify that, and and if it can be quantitated from the blood, and if, if that's all going to Come about is that there's some indication um, that'll help us start working on cures.
0: Are there any current medications out there to block these tau proteins, or to try to do some of this untangling you talked about, or is it just on its own?
3: Yeah, not yet. Not uh, yet. Yeah, but huh? uh, they do have some medications that help. Uh, re- they think they think, as it seems, a couple of them uh, uh, let, make that curve, that downward curve, less steep. Mm. So it sort of gives you more months. That's a big deal, to, then. Yeah, and that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and there are some of those that do have some help. Mm-hmm. So I'd be on those. They t- tend to have, at least what I've read, not not severe side effects. So it it would be worth looking into that.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so with the normal aging process, uh, I have found ways to help remember things better. So <laughs> this is just my own. I'm my own guinea pig, okay. and I tested myself. Personal system? Oh yeah, yeah. This is my system. I try yeah. a lot of things because I have a I have a split level house. I'm upstairs, and I say I'm going downstairs to get the keys. Well, I go down the stairs. I'm right at the top of the stairs. I go down the stairs. I get distracted with this, with that, another thing, and then I'm standing there going, "No, what did I come down here for?"
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, that's bothersome. There was, I I can remember I think days earlier days when I didn't have that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, memory, wondering, now, what did I come, so I'll walk up the stairs, I get right up, I cannot remember it, I'll stop halfway up and say, no, I'm going to stand here till I remember it. Nope. I have to walk right up to the top step when I thought of it, and then I think of it again.
0: Is that right? It's a location. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So then... that's when you discovered what it was you wanted to go to the next level to get. <laughs> yeah. So you take yourself back to that environment? Yeah, it's interesting. Because your brain can think of 50 things on the way down the stairs. That's exactly what was happening. See, I'm
3: distracting myself. From that thought. Right. So then I thought, well, okay, here I am standing at the top of the stairs. Now I'm going to say, I'm going to say out loud, I'm going down to get the keys. And my wife says, what? Say, "Never mind. It's just just for me. I go down there and I can be down there a half hour distracted. And I go, now I'm down here. Oh yeah. For the keys. Okay. It comes to me that fast. Mm -hmm. All because I heard myself say it. Interesting. So now I teach my students that. Not about standing at the top of the stairs and looking, talking about keys, but reading their textbook of what's important. If they say it out loud, you'll remember it longer. Interesting. And if you teach it to someone else, buddy, the buddy system and say, "Here's how this biochemistry system works. Here's how we metabolize sugar. We have this enzyme that enzyme." And you say it out loud and you have someone who can give you some feedback like, "Oh, you you forgot something," or "That sounds right." Yeah. You both remember it. But the person who's taught it, the person who said it, will remember it longer. Yeah. And there's a lot of psychological studies to back that up. Mhm. So I was telling this to a small church group, um, uh, Sunday school class, and I came back the next week, and they were all elderly. That means they're older than me. Okay. Okay. So they're older than dirt, and they're 80s to 90s, and this group, and I came back the next week, and one guy, 85-year-old, says, boy, that really works. He said, I'm going to go out to the garage, and I say, I'm going out there to find a hammer, you know, and he says, I get out there, and I'm tinkering with everything, and by golly, the hammer comes back to me mm, just because, because I said it. Yeah.
0: That is so So I've cured many people of yeah. <laughs> of old age. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And you have explained that on this show. Oh, my goodness. So in some ways, we're sharing this intellectual property. <laughs> yes. well, and I'm sure there will be some royalty paid out. Yes, send your as, nickels and dimes exactly, to, uh, to Faith Radio. Bill Arnold. Yeah, yeah, he's, Arnold. The afternoon show he's Bill collecting Arnold. for me. Thanks. Yes, um, yeah. But I find that to be interesting, and that can be implemented with loved ones. Who may not have Alzheimer's issues, but might have early memory issues yes. of any kind. And don't yes. we all have trouble remembering stuff? We do. We do. Uh,
3: my wife never remembers anything I tell her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. and, yeah. and and by the way, if I, vice versa. She yeah. said, no, remember yesterday I said, I go, no. Yeah. Were you listening? No. Bruce? Yeah, no. I didn't think so. But I never said it. She said it. Right. See? And so... You know, I said, it's, it's nothing against you, dear. I just can't hear your voice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we're almost married 50 years. You know, you tune out after a while. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, I found that if she's going to tell me something and if it's kind of important, I'll start a conversation about it just so that we, I say something. You have exchange. Yeah. words an exchange? exchange? Well, I remember it for weeks better than her. That's so interesting. Now I'm telling her, here's what you said. <laughs> she said, I didn't say that. Yes, I remember because we conversed about it. hmm so I'm trying to teach that to my students that you can get a better grade just by being verbal. About it. Mm. Verbal so, alone? Can you even be verbal alone? Yes. Well, you one you're... student tells me, I said, there's nobody at home to talk to about it. You know, yeah. So I, talk, I, tell, I teach it to my cat. I said, well, that's good. You're going to have a pretty smart cat. Yeah. You are going to pass biochemistry. Yeah. No. Other one says, I, I just teach it to my mom. And my mom says, well, that's interesting. <laughs> but she doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. But this person is saying it out loud. Yeah. And sometimes a parent will or somebody will give you feedback, but it makes you think about it. Yeah, yeah. And part of it just boils down to this. When you say something, when you read something, it comes to your eyes and it goes to one part of your brain, Mm -hmm. what I saw. If you're going to say it out loud, it has to go to your speech center. Then it has to go to the actual muscles of your mouth and you actually have to say it. Mm -hmm. And then you actually hear that and then you process what you heard. You're ending up with 4 or 5 brain centers instead of one.
0: So talking to yourself is a pretty important thing oh, to do. Oh, I do it all the time. Yeah. yeah, awesome. Especially in the car like where am I? Exactly. Dr. Bruce Smat is my guest we're talking about Alzheimer's and we're going to uh, continue that discussion in just a couple minutes. We'll be right back. some of that replay of Dr. Bruce Sumat. He was awfully interesting, enjoyed that a great deal. I hope you did too. It's always fun doing live radio. All this prep I had for Alex McFarlane now out the window. So we're going to have uh, Dr. Ann Bradley coming up in just a minute after the break. And she, of course, is the um, the editor and contributing author over at the Institute for Faith Work works in economics, and she is a PhD in economics from George Mason University. She got that in 2006, and she is really smart. We're going to talk to her about what's going on with the COVID relief bill, and then we're also going to ask about what happens to our economy Will we face an inflation. That's the big burning question. Coming up in the second hour, Dr. Christian Widener will be joining me. He's going to talk about his new book about the uh, rebuilding of the temple, and then Tom Stewart, who is a veteran- journalist and broadcaster, and he's got a fascinating story of his career. I want to do a topic, a uh, segment called Faith at Work, how you living out your faith at your job. That's all coming up. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back with Dr. Ann Rathbone Bradley. to talking to Dr. Ann Bradley and every time she comes on I learn something because she's so smart and she is um, over at the Institute for Faith, Work and Economics. You go to tifwe.org and welcome back to the show.
2: Hi Bill, thanks for having me. Happy Friday. Yeah,
0: I've got uh, a listener that is a big fan of yours and I already got a really good question from him. Do you want to hear it right off the bat? Sure. Should Should we open with a great question? We should. All right. Here's what he said. This is my wingman, Terry. He said, when the new stimulus package is passed, it will add to an unprecedented total of over $5 trillion in government spending in the last year and a half alone. His question is, with the market continuing to climb but unemployment still high, debt is rising, commercial real estate sagging, how long can this scenario continue? How long can this bubble continue to grow before it bursts and what happens when it does? As wow, someone,
2: we started off with a bang.
0: I know. He said, as someone who works in the restaurant industry, I'm very concerned about that because I saw how the 2007 recession impacted his work, and it was not good. Yeah.
2: Yes, absolutely. And he's right about all of those things. So, Terry, this is a great question. Uh, you know, we're at, as he mentioned, $5 trillion, um in stimulus packages. And here's a here's a figure. Um, So that's so far. Right. So that doesn't even exclude the possibility that there will be another one. Maybe there will. Maybe there won't. Mm -hmm. But so far. um, So if we took that five trillion dollars, this is just kind of splicing the data. And we gave the bottom 80 percent of the population that money. We could write the bottom 80 percent of the U.S. population a check for fifty thousand dollars. a lot of money. And we haven't, yeah, isn't that, that's a way to think about this. Um, And the two, you know, the, the 2 trillion that we're talking about right now, uh, we're talking about giving families $1,400, you know, the, the kind of infighting on the Hill is over what the income cut off, but it's nowhere near 50,000. And so this is really shocking when you think about what You know, if we're going to make the argument that the government is in a position to help people, and if you look at those numbers and cut them, that way you can see they could help people a lot more by giving them just direct cash for people who have been unemployed. And Terry mentions being in the restaurant business. Of course, this is one of the hardest hit industries because at the beginning, many restaurants were closed. They had to figure out how to do curbside still today. You can't have maximum seating capacity. So there's just a lot of hiccups still. We're not out of the woods yet. And so he brings up the right questions, which is how long is this going to last? How long can we kind of finance um, these spending packages? And you know, the, the the idea is that they're going to stimulate the economy. That's why they're called stimulus packages. And of course, we this is not new to us, right? That, so the, the pandemic stimulus packages are uh, have different things associated with them, but we tend to always engage in different forms of stimulus spending. He mentioned the Great Recession. We did it then. And so the question is, is that really what it takes for the economy to get going? And what I would say is that there are areas where the government can really help. And and we we could even say there's people who need direct cash payments because they've been unemployed for so very long. But when you look at what's in these bills, it's a lot of uh, pork as we call it, right? Pork barrel spending where we're adding pet projects and um you know Silicon Valley's getting a subway and uh all you know FEMA's getting money, uh Amtrak's getting money. Again, some of these places have been hurt, but you have to ask the question, uh, can we afford this? Can we can we afford to bail out the airlines again? You know, can we afford to be using this money in this way or are there alternative things that the government can do along with nonprofit organizations and really entrepreneurs to help the economy get back to where we know it can be? I mean, GDP is growing and we're not stuck where we were, thank goodness, in the second and third quarters of the year, uh, last year, but there's still a lot of work to do. And I think the answer to Terry's question, what I would say is let's free up entrepreneurs more than we are now to find innovative solutions to solve the problems.
0: So, Anne, when we look at the amount of debt that is happening right now, and this $5 trillion in a year and a half is, is a staggering number. It's just, it's, I can't comprehend it. Mm-hmm. When does inflation start to go nuts?
2: <laughs> well, if you've watched the markets in the past few days, this is kind of what everybody's wondering about, which is we can't have zero inflation, right? Right. I mean, you can't have it forever. And so I think the Fed has a role here. And what, you know, I think what some investors are worried about, and and that's why kind of the markets have um, been quivering a little bit in the last few days is because they're looking at this third stimulus bill and the economy is already recovering. Major cities are starting to recover. So recovery is already happening. So to add in a $2 trillion injection into the economy and to have the Fed commit to easy money um, and mm. trying to kind of manipulate inflation rates, I, again, I think what we're doing is tinkering where we can't tinker forever. And that's the problem. Ultimately, you have to pay the piper always, because yep. even where the federal government is concerned, money it has opportunity costs. It can go to other things. And so we can't just pretend that we can pull out of the magic <laughs> bucket of money forever. We, we absolutely cannot. And so inflation is inevitable. Um, mortgage rates have gone up uh, over 3%, which this is the first time we've seen that since July. So you're seeing the economy do what it's supposed to do. Again, we can't expect to have 2% mortgage rates forever. I mean, that's just an unheard of rate. So I think this is the problem is that people see some some of these things that they like And they want to manufacture them forever. But, you know, you're just we're not guaranteed zero inflation or these kind of low mortgage rates and other types of things that we've seen.
0: So when I start to see the prices go up and I, you know, I I think we're all noticing prices going up at the gas pump. And then you think of the transportation costs. So you think groceries are going to probably cost more pretty soon. And you start to feel how that really starts to impact um families, and that should cause concern for all of us
2: that should cause concern for all of us mm-hmm. exactly um so uh when we see these price increases filter through the economy in different ways, as you know your example was a great one it's not just the oil prices that affects transportation costs right. and that affects all the things you buy, yeah, so when you show up to the grocery store and you want things to be there, I mean, think about a banana that you buy at the grocery store that's not made or grown anywhere near your house so (laughs) we have a limited amount of time to get it to you to get it to your grocery store and so um, that's going to uh, push all of these costs get pushed onto consumers and i think that's ultimately the problem here is and that's kind of a longer run uh, or, or maybe medium run problem in the moment you know free money always sounds like a good idea or perhaps it sounds good on paper But it has to be financed some way, and so who finances it? Well, consumers do, and consumers will continue to have to finance that. But we have to eat. Some of us have to drive to work. We have to heat our homes. Uh, There's a lot of things we have to do, and so we're just going to have to bear the burden of that. So really, what we need is just for this economic growth to continue. But you know, I'm of the mind that you can't manufacture that through policy. You can't just say we need economic growth, so let's. Craft a stimulus bill or a monetary policy that gets us really good economic growth. Rather, what the government and the Fed can do is provide an environment in which entrepreneurs can create growth, because that's where growth comes from.
0: Mm-hmm. And you, you
2: know, big business, small business.
0: Yeah, and do you think the the stimulus bill is a good one? Do you think it should even happen? I mean, I, I heard that economists on really both sides of the political aisles were kind of agreeing that. Uh, maybe it's not a good idea.
2: Yeah, I mean, again, this is the third one. So right. my question as an economist is how many times can we do this and how how many times are we going to be told we have to do this? And so there's, you know, this kind of what I call this vicious cycle of intervention or vicious cycle of regulation, which is to say that once you start intervening in the economy to kind of engineer outcomes, the problem with that is that's not how the economy works. So when you engineer some outcomes, you might get some of them in the short run, but then you create all these unintended consequences. So you have to engineer more intervention. And so, you know, the problem with this is I just I don't see a lot in here that is actually helping the people that have been harmed. If you were to ask me, you know, if we could take half of that amount, so $1 trillion, and we could give cash payments to people who have been persistently unemployed, I might say I'm okay with that as a compromise, and I would never, um, you know, normally I wouldn't. I don't think I would say let's do that. But these are unprecedented times. But we're not even talking about giving people thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, which we could, at, you know, based on the kind of statistics I gave you at the beginning. So I think the problem with this bill is that it's benefiting some people, and the U.S. taxpayer is going to pay for it both in taxes but also in rising consumer prices. So it's not a win-win. In the long run,
0: Mm -hmm. and when when the Congress puts a dollar into the injects it into the economy, I would assume that that money is taxed or or it's borrowed out of our economy. Is that? I mean, where does the money come from?
2: Right. This is a great question, Uh, and it's an important insight because the government is an entity that has the monopoly of force, and so a legitimate government uses that force. You know, in legitimate ways, that's how we think about constitutional constraints and the rule of law and all those types of things. But it's the the purpose of it is that it has the monopoly of force. And so what it does when it provides you with services is it has three ways essentially to get revenue. It can tax. It can borrow. It can inflate. Mm -hmm. That's the way the government gets cash to do things, whether it's funding a military, building a bridge, whatever it is, you know, funding a stimulus plan. So this is the difference between the private sector. So think about, you know, Microsoft. Bill and Melinda Gates have made a lot of money in the market, and they have decided to take some of their personal wealth and invest it in philanthropy. So they earn money in one sector, and in another sector, they gift it. This is not what the government does, right? They don't sell you toothbrushes by day and then take the profits (laughs) and give you stimulus bills Mm -hmm. by night. And so Mm -hmm. it is very much, you know, there's this kind of, relationship between the market sector and the state sector, which is to say there's a limit, there's an inherent limit into how big the state can get. And when I say that, I mean how it's capacity for spending, because it has it necessarily, as you point out in your question, it gets money from other sectors in the Mm -hmm. market. It is earned right through value creation, but really government borrow money is always borrowed money. Mm -hmm. It's always transferred from another sector. So it's not magic. You know, it's not growing on trees.
0: Yeah. So how long do you think it'll take before we are back to a stronger employment? I think I've heard estimates of up to two years. Does that sound about right?
2: Yeah. So, you know, in February of last year, I think you and I have talked about this before, in fact, uh, Just the most incredible unemployment numbers in terms of uh, really big gains, 2.5%, I believe. And the biggest gains were for Black Americans and Latino Americans. So it was just remarkable. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, all has been whittled away. And we had huge uh, numbers um, in April and May, but we've rebounded a lot. So I think the numbers just came out, and they're a little bit better. So I think we're down to 6.2%, which is down from uh, February. So it's moving in a good direction but then when you look at the other data that talks about businesses that have been closed and the suspicion is that though, at least those businesses will remain permanently closed. Now, the question is, you know, if you had a small business and you had to close, do you, do you reopen another business or do you go work somewhere? You know, and so we'll have to see. I don't think we know what's going to happen yet, but I do think it's going to take at least another year And frankly, it really will depend on the political intervention. Mm -hmm. If we continue to engage in stimulus spending, that's going to have an unemployment effect as well, because ultimately, you know, we have to pay for this somehow. And so, uh, you know, I think we we don't know yet. I would say at least another year. I'm happy with the gains that we've made in terms of people getting back to work. But I think we need we want to get back to those old numbers in the two percent range. Um, Those are really strong numbers. I don't think we're going to get there in the next year, but, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, so we could. Right. But, you know, given what I've seen so far in the first, um, you know, we're only in the beginning of the third month of this year, um, we're spending like we have a lot more money than we do, and that has consequences. So that will slow our growth.
0: And the U.S. economy added 379,000 jobs in February. Do, Do you like those numbers?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's good in the sense that um, it's a sign that people are reopening. I think the vaccine um, has, is giving people confidence that they can do more that they could do before. Um, and so people are going to be able to find ways, you know, maybe back into their offices a couple days a week, being able to do more things than they could before, maybe not just being restricted to curbside and this type of thing. So it's great. We want to keep seeing that improvement, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, what I worry about is businesses who just couldn't weather the storm. You know, what are we going to see with those entities? Do they come back in a new, you know, with new life to them in a new form? Um, do they get replaced by other businesses? I just don't think we know yet.
0: All right. Let me take a little break. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. She's over at the Institute for Faith Work and economics. She's also a professor. So we'll take a very short break and be right back. Welcome back. I'm with Dr. Ann Bradley, and I always enjoy talking uh, uh, about the economy with Ann because she's an e- economist. And I, uh, I'm just looking at some of the things that are going on with the um, the new administration, and of course, the the spending uh, initiatives and packages are always so ambitious. There's so much they want to do. Uh, the infrastructure package, some of these uh, expenses that are coming up that I know are part of just a political agenda um, at this time. And is, is this all prudent or do you see what's happening where they're just trying to get as much done in the shortest amount of time as possible, just because that's what a new administration does?
2: I think that's some of it, the first hundred days of an administration are, are where the American people watch mm-hmm. and they kind of see the president set the tone. So I think some of it is normal. But I think what's abnormal, there are two things. One is the contentiousness of this past election. And I think the Biden administration is doing everything it can to distance itself from the Trump administration. And so I think there's kind of a um, a real agenda to try to do that at the beginning. The other issue is that I think, you know, not I think, obviously we're in a pandemic. And so you know, his, the White House buying vaccines and things like this, I think these are attempts to try to get the country back on track at people working and really get kids in school too. I mean, we haven't talked about that yet, but that, you know, that doesn't sound directly like an economic factor, but it certainly is. If you, if you can't put your kids in school, then, you know, how do you work? And um, these, these are different types of questions depending on what type of work you do. If you have to work out of the house, these can pose real problems for people. So, you know, I think what I have to say that I'm discouraged by is the, uh, you know, rule by executive order that we're seeing now. All presidents engage in executive orders, but really this administration has come out flying out of the gates with executive orders. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really bad precedent. And here's the thing. I think across the aisle, both Republicans and Democrats are kind of bad about this in the sense that, you know, if your party's in power, you you kind of think executive orders are okay. <laughs> but if your party's not in power, you criticize them. And so I think we've seen that over the years. Um, but this seems to be kind of executive order with gusto. And I, I think that's sets a very bad precedent for what the president of the United States is actually supposed to do. And, you know, kind of the division of, of powers and just federalism itself. So I don't, I don't, that I am not optimistic about that because I think it, it just will keep getting carried into the future by future presidents. I mean, it becomes the status quo. Mm-hmm. And what does
0: a an aging and a, a slow growing population do to the economy?
2: This is also really important. In fact, we were talking about this in one of my classes this week. You know, e- economists really pay attention to birth rates mm-hmm. uh, because. And this has everything. It's it's interesting. Uh, You know, birth rates don't sound like they have anything to do with public finance, but of course they do, because if you have an aging workforce uh, that's retiring, so we have a lot of boomers retiring or they're already retired, and so we have these unfunded liabilities in the form of Social Security and Medicare and things like this, and those are designed uh, presumably at least to care for those populations who are not working anymore, but to finance them we need a vibrant, growing young population, people who are engaging in the workforce. When we look at birth rate declines, uh, we get concerned. Um, and those are just the economic reasons. I think there's sociological and theological reasons we should be worried about this, um, but but there are certainly economic consequences. And think about very extreme examples. For example, in China, the one-child policy has really devastated uh, China's kind of capacity for growth. Uh, It skews the population and it really reduces the number of able-bodied workers and entrepreneurs and, um, you you know, that you have in society. And so I think this is, we look at these things when we see drops, you know, we worry about the future. And for public finance reasons, we worry about, can we afford to continue spending when we don't, if if we're going to continually have a drop in population, you know, who are the workers going to be in the next generations that are going to finance what we've promised people.
0: Mm-hmm. And this question I've always wanted to ask, and I know you'll answer it. Why would the Fed ever want to raise rates if it's going to make the economy worse?
2: Well, so, you know, this is, uh, this is troubling because I think what the Fed is doing right now is engaging in fiscal policy. They're, they're, in control of monetary policy, but what they're trying to do is position interest rates in a certain way to get certain desired outcomes that they want. And this is really not what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a very simple way, what the Fed is supposed to do is match money supply with money demand. In that regard, money demand, you know, um, is kind of like the demand for lots of other things. There's a certain demand for what the dollars that people want to hold and people's expectations about consuming now versus saving is reflected in what they spend today versus what they put in the bank. And that, you know, in terms of banking interest rates that has a lot of um, lot to say. So the fed doesn't directly control those interest rates. They control kind of interbank loans and things like this. But what I worry about right now is that the, the fed seems to be toying explicitly with interest rates in a way to engineer certain fiscal policy outcomes. right? To kind of, again, it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. They want to jumpstart the economy, but we don't want to do it too fast. We don't want investors to get scared. We don't want it to do it too slow. And this puts economists in positions that they're really not designed to be in. We are not puppet masters of the economy. Um, and so the interest rate is what it is. And if you artificially try to re- increase it or decrease it, um, you're going to you're going to pay the price for that. So nobody wants to see interest rates above 0, right? That was mm-hmm. kind of your original question, but yeah. they can't be 0 forever. Right. They have to bounce back.
0: Mhm. So do you think consumers will open their wallets?
2: Uh, you know, I it, I think it depends. I think we'll see what happens when the stimulus comes out. Okay. Some of it will. Some, some of them will. Yeah. Um isn't the easiest fix know. to
0: put more money in the hands of of consumers just by cutting their taxes
2: yes of course that's not going to
0: happen though is (laughs) it
2: that's a great way to do it um and it lets consumers drive the bus in terms of you know what they want to buy and when they want to spend it and i mean think about if you just got a i remember my mom telling me this in the in the um fall you know she got a stimulus check and she said i don't need this Hmm. i mean they didn't even ask me and I thought, well, that's an interesting concept, consent, right? So, you know, I mean, she didn't, she's retired and on a fixed income, and she basically wrote the check to my brother because she thought he would need it more, and that's great, right? But, I mean, you could have also not done that, and she would have been fine. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, for her, it's not going to stimulate any more spending for some people at will. Right. Um, it depends on the amount as well. So.
0: Ann, thank you so much. Always nice to have you on the show, and always nice to talk to you.
2: Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure.
0: Yeah, Dr. Ann Bradley has been my guest. We'll take a little break. When we come back, we have lots more coming up. Dr. Christian Widener is going to be on the program. Looking forward to him. He's going to talk about his new book about the rebuilding of the temple and where he thinks that's going to take place. And then Tom Stewart will be joining me. We've got a little segment called Faith at Work. That's all coming up next.